Well, good morning. It's a joy to come before you this morning to bring the word of the Lord. Uh, as some of you may have noticed, um, or most of us may have noticed, today is December 5th. It is the first Sunday of December. This means that Christmas gifts are on the minds of some people, right? So let me ask you a question. If this is you, when people think about buying gifts for others, who do people normally think about? It's common for people to think about getting gifts for family, for friends, for significant others, for teachers, clients, maybe bosses. People normally buy gifts for those uh, they love or for those that do good to them. People normally buy gifts for, peop for those that do good to us. This is common in our culture. This is common to... And the lawyer's response, notice, being a man who studied God's word, he responds by summarizing the law. He, he says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer, being one who knew God's word, he could have listed the 613 commandments, right? But instead, due to his understanding of the word, he summarizes the entire law by referencing the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which is what Paul read for us this morning. In other words, the lawyer says, the law says, love God and love neighbor. Now, one theologian and former pastor describes this kind of love like The word love here is not a romantic love that desires something from someone else. It's not a familial affection or brotherly love given to those. Rather, it's a unique Christ-like love that purely desires to bless others with nothing in return. This is the kind of love that the scriptures in this passage refer to. This love is a continual, ongoing love that does not take a vacation or a break. And the standard, we find, is a high one. That requires loving perfectly with all of one's entire being. Now, once again, notice Jesus' response. He affirms the lawyer, saying, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer wasn't expecting that. Jesus told him, you're right. You're absolutely right. Do it, and you will live. In other words, if the lawyer wanted to inherit eternal life, because remember, he asked, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? All he had to do was love God and neighbor perfectly. That's it. Jesus affirmed that this is one way of earning eternal life. But he also revealed the standard that is required of it, and it's perfection. 
And it is something that no one, no man apart from Jesus Christ, the God-man, no man can fulfill this. The problem is that if you are like me, you'll be immediately reminded that you have not done this. As a matter of fact, even if we tried to do so starting today, we've already failed because we haven't loved God perfectly even starting this morning. We haven't loved our neighbor perfectly because the standard of loving God perfectly includes all of our being, our mind, our strength, our, our love. And it's a continual doing in thought, in word, in action, in deed. Every second, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year of our life perfectly without ever taking a break. God and neighbor. So even if we tried, we failed. And this is what Jesus wanted the lawyer to see. So our problem is that we can't do this. But also, that left to ourselves, we don't want to love God and we don't want to love neighbor like this. Think about the last time that you broke one of God's commands. The motive behind it is because you love yourself more than God. You want what's best for you rather than what's glorifying to God. This is true of you. It's true of me. It's true of all of us. And that's why I can say it with certainty because the scripture reveals this to us. It's a common problem that we all have. So not only can we not do this, but we also do not have the desire to do it left to ourselves. You see, sin leads us to be impatient. It leads us to be irritable. It leads us to be angry, self-centered, unforgiving, lustful, liars. And the list could go on and on and on. And what we deserve is not eternal life. That's not what we deserve. The Bible tells us that what we do deserve is eternal damnation. So the law in this sense shows us how sinful we are and how short we fall of what God requires of each and every one of us. And the law is meant not to save us, but to take us by the hand and walk us directly to Jesus. And Paul writes about this in Romans 3 and Romans 5 and Romans 7. By responding to the lawyer's question with God's requirement for inheriting eternal life, Jesus was showing the lawyer his great need. Now going back to the lawyer's response there in verse 29. At this point, the lawyer should have come to his senses. He should have been humbled. And he should have turned to Jesus right then and there. This would, this would have been the right response. This, should have, this is what he, what he should have done. But we see that it's not how he responds. Some commentators believe that at this precise moment, the lawyer felt guilty. And as a result, he immediately began to look for an excuse. You can imagine what he must have been thinking, the ways that he himself had failed numerous times to try to cover up his failures 
with his religiosity. This is possibly, but this is possible, um, possibly why he responds the way that he does. Luke says that the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" It's almost as if he says, "Love." But who's my neighbor? And so it shows that the lawyer, though he was very well versed in the Testament, he had failed to understand what God required or requires of man. So he tries to justify himself and he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? In an attempt to declare himself innocent and guiltless, he responds by trying to lower the standard. This is something that we also try to do when we break God's law, don't we? We immediately try to justify ourselves. We try to blame shift or we look for a way out. We see it in the very beginning with our very first parents, Adam and Eve. Did you guys eat from the, from, from the tree that I told you not to eat? It was the woman that you gave me. It was a serpent. Right. And that's where we get it from. We've inherited uh, sin. It's in all of us. And in Jewish tradition, there were some teachings, not from God's word, uh, but these were other teachings uh, that the Jewish custom had uh, that taught that sinners did not deserve help. And so it's possible that the lawyer was attempting to justify himself by turning to these extra biblical teachings by creating a distinction between his fellow Israelites who qualified to be a neighbor and thus worthy of, re of receiving love and those who were Gentiles and thus not worthy of being a neighbor. But regardless of, what, of why he responds this way, his answer tells us what he was looking for and that was a way out. He was looking for a way to get into heaven without having to fully obey God's commands. But rather than giving him a break, Jesus, he turns it up a notch. And he reveals the full standard of what God requires. And he does this by giving a parable. So up until this point, we've just been making observations from, from, from this text. Now before getting to our first point, let's really briefly look at what a parable is. Parables are short stories that express spiritual truths. One professor, one of my former professors, says, By using parables, Jesus offers a Christ-centered worldview and invites people to embrace it as their own. In other words, by using parables, Jesus was offering his, his audience spiritual goggles by which they could see the world from his perspective. Now, as we move along into the parable, please keep these things in mind because this parable is an illustration that Jesus gave to communicate a spiritual truth to the lawyer, to his audience, and to us by extension. So with that being said, we, we come to our first point, uh, the call to be a neighbor, the call to be a neighbor. We read in verses 30 to 35. 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So the parable begins with a man who had just been assaulted. This man was traveling down a well-known road. And it was well-known because it was a dangerous road, known to those who heard the parable. The road was approximately 17 miles long, going downhill, heading east toward, from Jerusalem towards Jericho. And this path was well-known because of the dangers that it presented. It was known as a road where thieves would rob people that traveled through it because it had caves and rocks. It made it easy for these thieves to, to, to rob people and to get away with it. Now, the man in the parable, we find that he was stripped, he was beat, and left for dead. This man was possibly lying on the road uh, half naked without any indication of his identity. Right, because he got stripped of everything. So there was no easy way to, to identify him. He was probably left all bloody, and, and um, so it was hard to identify him. But presumably, he was in critical condition. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't ask for help because he can't. And maybe he's, he's not even able to communicate anything. So we're, told, we're not told his, his ethnicity and therefore, this man could be any man. It could be a Jew. It could be a Samaritan. It could be a Gentile. Now we find two religious men in this parable. Jesus introduces these men. Uh, and, and the audience would have imagined that one of these men would have stepped in to help. We find a priest and a Levite. First, a priest we see that a priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw the man, we would think that he would draw near and help, right? But that's not what we read. We're told that he passed by on the other side. And similarly, the Levite, we're told that when he came to the place where the man was left, he also saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Now, What's interesting about this is that both of these men were men who knew God, who knew His Word, and they had the chance to help the man who was in need. But instead, they, decide, they decided not to. They didn't want to bother themselves, and so they crossed to the other side, simply passing him by. Though we're not told why they did that, we know that both men showed no love for the man who was in need, and they knew God's Word but they were not doers of it. Now we're introduced to a Samaritan. This is where Jesus presents an unexpected twist in the parable. Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Think about what may have been running through the lawyer's mind at this time. If a temple priest and a Levite didn't help, Surely the Samaritan, who's good for nothing, passed by him as well. Or maybe the Samaritan even finished killing him, right? Because there was this disdain, this hatred. 
towards between Jews and Samaritans. But that's the plot twist, something that wasn't expected. The one whom one would have expected to do least is the one who does the most. The lawyer and all who were hearing the parable would have been shocked and taken back by the introduction of the Samaritan at this point in the parable. Now to understand why this is, it's helpful to understand the tension that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. Samaritans were those who, were, uh, descend, who had descended from Israelites who had intermarried with foreigners in Samaria uh, during the time that uh, the ten tribes uh, were taken away into captivity in Assyria. Because of this, those, the children of those intermarriages were known as half-breeds and as a result were despised by pure Jews. The Sumerians built a temple on Mount uh, Gerizim which they insisted was the true place where the nation should worship God. Samaria became a place of refuge for those who had been excommunicated from the Jewish community, uh, those who were uh, kicked out because they were criminals or violators of the law. So this increased the tension between the Jews and the Samaritan, between both nations. Now, by the time of Jesus, there was a strong hostility between both of these people groups. And if you remember the, the account from John, uh, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, you'll remember that Jesus, as he was making his way, uh, he passed through Samaria and he sat next to a well where a woman approached him, uh, uh, approached the well to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a cup of water. And her response is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? We, we read that in John 4. So there was this understanding that Jews and Samarians don't get along, right? So while he was sitting, a woman came to draw water, and this is what happens. And John inserts a comment at this point in his, uh, in his gospel. He writes, because Jews have no dealings with Samarians. So that's how strong the, the opposition was. But Jesus introduces the Samaritan precisely to teach the lawyer and us what it means to be a neighbor. So we're told in verses 33 through 35 that the Samaritan had compassion for the man who was suffering. Now the word compassion here carries the meaning of being moved as to one's bowels. So this is the area below your stomach, which has also been known as the seat of pity or tenderness. It's the same word that is used in the parable of the prodigal son when the father sees his son a far way off making his way back home. We're told that the father feels compassion for his son and he runs to him. That's also in Luke 15. It's also the same word that's used to describe Jesus. He felt compassion for the sick and God's compassion for his people as he moves towards his people in love. For the Samaritan, his compassion revealed the state of his heart. 
It was sensitive and aware of those in need. But it also moved him to draw near in love. Now, there's four things that Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a loving neighbor. And we'll go through these quickly. First, this parable teaches us who we should love. The three examples in the parable show us that we ought to love anyone who is in need of help, regardless of who they are. We already said that the man was unidentifiable, and the only thing that he was left with was barely a little bit of life. While the two men in the parable and the lawyer resisted the call to be a neighbor to the man who was left for dead, because possibly he was outside of their circle, ethnicity, or people, the Samaritan shows us that love ought to move us to action regardless of what tensions or prejudices we have or have been told about others who are different than us. Even though the, the Samaritan was despised by the Jewish people, he didn't come up to the Samaritan and say, uh, to, to the man who was beaten left and say, are you a Jew or are you a Samaritan? Right? He just saw the need and he was moved to action. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, do you ever find yourself coming across someone in need and you base your decision to help based on their ethnic background or social status? Maybe it's been a homeless person you see at the grocery store asking for change or for food. Maybe someone at a freeway exit trying to sell you something or to wash your windshield to make ends meet. Perhaps it's been a coworker who isn't as tech savvy as you and is struggling and needs help. Maybe it's a neighbor who has made your life miserable who could use someone to talk to or some encouragement. Beloved, if we negatively discriminate against others based on race, gender, social group, or anything that makes us different than you or me, we need to know that this attitude is anti-gospel. If this is how we treat others, we need to repent. Because, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that we should carelessly just give money away or that we should just kind of jump into any situation that we see where um, someone needs help. But what I want to encourage us to do is to reflect on our heart motivation for helping others or for withholding care from someone who is unlike you. Next, when should we love? We learn that we ought to draw near to, to help others whenever we, come, we become aware of someone who's in danger or in need of help. We see this in all three men in the parable. Jesus says that all three of them were going about their business when they saw a man in need. We learn that we ought to be ready to be, to, to be helpful at all times because that's what the Samaritan was able to do. He was ready. And you know, if we really wanted to, all we have to do is walk around a neighborhood or drive around and we will find someone who is in need, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is telling us. 
He's not saying, hey, go around looking for people who are in need. That's not the purpose of the parable. What we find in the parable is that as the Samaritan was going about his day, because presumably he was heading somewhere, he comes across this man who was in need. And so similarly, as you and I go about our days and we come across someone who is in need, we ought to have a heart disposition that is inclined to help. Now that might look different for each one of us in the, uh, the means that we have to help or in the person that we come across that needs help. Those all um, are, can be approached with wisdom. But the key here is what is our heart disposition in wanting to offer help or withholding help from those who need it? The parable also shows us that we ought to be ready and willing to love even when it may be an inconvenience or when it includes some form of danger. Uh, once again, the road that was traveled on was known for being dangerous. And we see that when the Samaritan stops to help, he gets off of his horse and he begins to try to heal the man right then and there. Loving someone in need involves this. Uh, it involves being inconvenienced. It involves giving of ourself, even if it comes at a cost to us. Um, and each case, once again, may be different, but love leads us to seek the well-being of others, even at a cost to ourselves. Next, how much should we love? Well, the answer here is we ought to love generously. The uh, Samaritan used his own resources to provide for example, he uses wine and oil to disinfect and bind up the wounds. He sets the man on his own animal, so he has to get off his animal and now starts walking. He takes him to an inn and takes care of him. And because he had to leave, he goes to the innkeeper and he gives him approximately two weeks worth of pay. And he requests that the innkeeper would provide additional help if needed and he offers to repay anything that's exceeded when he returns. It's almost as if he was writing a blank check. Now, this form of love, once again, remember, Jesus is turning up the notch. He's setting the standard for what it means to love, right? This kind of love requires believing all things, right? Because the Samaritan runs the risk of being taken advantage of by the innkeeper. He runs the risk of maybe the guy getting better during that time that he's gone and leaving without saying anything and um, maybe saying, hey, put this on his tab and I'm out of here, right? But what Jesus wants us to, to see here is that we ought to uh, love generously and this is something that is ought, that ought to be done not sometimes when we feel like it this is the heart disposition that we ought to have always uh, and at a minimum it may require to give more than what we plan for and it always comes of course at a cost and if you're worried about losing out or thinking Who's going to care for me? 
Well, the scripture has a lot to say about that as well. Matthew writes, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Luke writes in Luke 6, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Or Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And the scripture is full of this wisdom, of this truth that God will care for his people. So brothers and sisters, let's not limit ourselves from giving due to fear or uh, fearing that our needs will not be met. God knows your needs and he will meet them accordingly. And finally, why should we love? Well, we should love out of compassion because this is what moved the Samaritan. The Samaritan's actions show us that the fuel for loving others is not religion, but compassion. Seeing um, a need and moving towards others to do something about it. Coming to church on Sunday and hearing sermons week in and week out on its own will not move us to love. It might grow us in our understanding and our knowledge of God's word, but as we see with the Levite and with the priest and the lawyer, they had no hard disposition to obey or to actually fulfill what God required. And so similarly, as we've learned in James, we've learned that it's not about knowing right doctrine. It's about actually doing something with it. It's about obeying. Coming to church to hear the word is good, so please come and hear what God has to say to us. But we, we must not let that uh, be the end. We ought to meditate on the word that we receive and let it take root in our hearts that we would move, be moved to love others. And this leads us then to verse 36. Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer couldn't even get himself to say the name of the Samaritan or uh, to identify the Samaritan. He says, to the one who showed him mercy. And now Jesus turns the question on him. And he says, he goes from, who is my neighbor to who proved to be a neighbor? This is a question that is for us as well. Who will you be a neighbor to? How will you respond when you see someone in need? So that is our first point, and don't worry, our second point is very brief. Our second point is our need for the true neighbor. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true neighbor because everything that we just went through and described in the parable is what Jesus did, and Jesus did more than that. He does for us everything that we could not do when it comes to obeying God and paying the penalty for our sin. Jesus left his throne because he saw how sin had left us spiritually dead in the mess that we're in right now in the world. 
And he had compassion that moved him to leave his throne in heaven where he is being praised and glorified by the angels. And he left all that to come into our world to seek and to save those who had been left half dead by sin and its effects. Not only did he do that, but he obeyed the word, the word perfectly. This high standard is met by Jesus himself. Remember the question that started this all. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer is we're doomed because we can't obey perfectly. But Jesus obeyed perfectly for us. We were left for dead in our sin, but Christ rescues us. He heals us and he pays for our sin with his grace. He freely gives us what we could never earn. He gives us himself and he gives us hope of eternal life based on his perfect obedience and his sacrifice. So those who repent of their sins and trust in him can receive a gift of eternal life from God. This is what the Lord gives to those who cannot earn it. If you're visiting us with, uh, with us today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we're very happy that you're with us and that you're able to hear the word of God. The Bible tells us that you cannot earn salvation by the things that you do. Salvation is a gift from God. And this parable, this sermon, is meant to help us see our need for Christ and to turn to him for forgiveness and for salvation. He is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God who is ready to save all who turn to him by placing their trust in Christ. And if you have any questions about this, please feel free to ask me or David, and we'd be more than happy to talk to you more about this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, on the cross to die for us. We pray that this would um, take deep root in our hearts, Lord, that we would be marked as people or known as people who are loving and compassionate, who even in the face of danger give of ourselves for the good of others. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our ability to love, uh, not because we are wanting to earn our right standing with you, but because of what Jesus has done by giving his life to ransom us. Please bless uh, our time together by um, planting this word deep in our hearts, and we ask that you would produce fruit in it for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.